Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is there an easy way to explain the multiverse and what it means for the paranormal? If you're sharing your home with someone you can't see, is there any way to shut the door between their world and yours? Are orbs ghosts, UFOs, neither, or both? Hey there, and welcome to the 200th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Benino and our Monday Drive Time show on WON 1240 AM and com. I'm Ben, and asking those varied questions was my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. Well, 200 shows. Huh? But actually, it's more than that if you consider the internet shows we did in the beginning of our career here. But I don't. This is the official 200th show, so... I don't consider... No. Anyway, we're doing another open line show tonight to catch up on those never-ending emails. But before that, we must remind you of our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, what is considered the most haunted house in Jamaica? Uh, the answer, Rose Hall in Montego Bay, a place with a pretty terrible history as a sugar plantation worked by slaves. And in the meantime, it's been turned into pretty much of a hotel and a resort, so anything can happen. Anyway, the winner was Kirsten Mullen of East Hartford, Connecticut, my hometown. All right, so this week's question is, the wife of what Japanese politician claims to have been visited have visited Venus in a UFO? If you can handle that, call us locally at 401-766-1240 or from anywhere in the U.S. at 800-449-1240. If I don't announce a winner during the show and you still think you have a shot, drop a line to me at bennettbehindtheparanormal.com. But that would really do her wonders in American politics, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Not the witch thing was bad in Delaware. Well, anyway, uh, the winner will receive a copy of my last book, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. All right, so now is this great time to call. Our number's today, nationally at 800-449-1240, or locally at 401-766-1240. Okay, so let's uh, move on to our emails here. Now, we started this one... On another show, started answering it, that is. And I think it is a very important question, and I not only am going to answer it more fully today, but uh, I've actually, it actually prompted me to write an article, which is the newest one on NewEnglandGhosts.com, and it has to do with a simplified approach to the paranormal, and specifically our multiverse theories that we are a little different in believing, explain the paranormal. And the original question was from Rod Castro in Toronto, Canada. And uh, Ben, if we could read just the part we're going to kind of deal with tonight. Right. So can you explain and describe in the simplest terms, as if you're explaining to a kid, or as if you are describing sunlight to a blind person, since I have never heard, never seen a ghost, or even seen tables move, or witness strange creatures? Okay. Uh, I did uh, explain a little bit about some of my own experiences and Ben's on that. However, I wanted to uh, just go through the answer to how to take a simple approach to understanding these things. You take one sentence and you turn it into like a three-page article. Well, I know, but well, that's the simple approach. But no, there, a lot of people... See, we're so used to this and, for, and in dealing with the paranormal like this that it's second nature. We, we, we live our whole lives in this, with this multiverse thinking yeah. and the kind of spirituality that comes from it. But when you are, aren't used to it, and are used to dealing with the, uh, the, the uh, I suppose, the, the folklore aspect of the paranormal. Believe that. It's a little hard to shift. Uh, anyway, uh, Rod is not the, uh, not the only one uh, who has asked this question. Uh, other people have as well. So anyway, fair enough. Now imagine that you were born in a huge building 
with thousands of large, roomy apartments in it. You, however, have never been outside your own apartment, let alone the building. You live there with your family, and that apartment is your whole world. Everything you know is in that apartment. But sometimes you get scared. Sometimes you hear noises on the other side of a wall. Sometimes you even think you hear voices. Maybe once or twice, through a crack in a door, you see what appear to be shadows of other people moving. You are completely unaware that there are other apartments all around yours, so you explain all this, quote, paranormal activity, unquote, as best you can from your very limited experience of reality. For example, one of the voices you hear through a certain wall sounds just like your older brother. Your family said that he has uh, was gone now or went to a better place. You think, well, maybe he left some remnant of himself behind. Maybe I'm hearing a ghost. Once or twice, you've actually managed to exchange a few words with voices on the, quote, other side of a wall. Maybe you caught a name or a request. A few seemed just as scared as you were. One day you're passing a door that you've never seen open before. There's a frantic scratching on the other side. You stop dead in your tracks, terrified. All of a sudden, the door bursts open, and standing in the midst of a strange light from a weird room you've never seen, there is a huge furry creature on four legs. It looks curiously at you and speaks. Woof! Monster! Cryptid! You scream and run for the depths of your apartment, the only place you feel safe. Well, I'm sure you get the point. Your brother didn't die, he just moved to the apartment next door. You didn't see a monster. The connecting door to a very different apartment just opened for a moment and you saw your first dog. And you're not hearing or talking to ghosts, you're hearing or talking with people going about their business in adjoining apartments. You talked with one or two who seemed to know there were other apartments and other kinds of people and creatures nearby. Others seemed just as narrow and ignorant as you did when it came to the existence of the other apartments. This, of course, is a very simplistic way to explain the reality of realities. In fact, all the apartments, or worlds, are a unified building, which we refer to as the multiverse. Most of the tenants, except for you and people like you don't know from nothing, interact on a regular basis. Some of the tenants are good people, some are great, some are potential axe murderers, some are sleazy con artists who just want to prey on others. Others aren't human at all. Some tenants are considered loved ones by other tenants. The thing is, all the tenants are somehow connected, and many, many of them are good people who care about each other. The actions and attitudes of one tenant affect all the other tenants one way or the other. The whole building is an interactive system, whether the tenants know it or not. And all these apartments have connecting doors. Now multiply all this to infinity, and you can start to understand the multiverse. But understanding with the brain only goes so far. Start to feel, start to realize, start to visualize the reality of this infinite, interactive community of life in your deepest depths. You'll see not only the world, but yourself and others in a whole new light. Your life will change. You won't have to be afraid anymore, and best of all, you'll know that you don't have to be alone anymore. Greatest of all, you'll find God in a whole new way. He's the one who thought of this whole stupendous scenario, and he's closer to you than you are to yourself. But is there more to it than that? Do we as tenants, as it were, 
have responsibilities to other tenants? Does this, quote, building, unquote, need a tenants association? Well, here's some background on that, just to continue answering this and take it to its um, logical or illogical conclusion. Multiverse ideas didn't start with Ben and me. They're very ancient, and they really are quite simple. What's difficult is getting past the way we in the modern West, that's Europe and North America, and now just about everywhere, have been trained to look at the world by our teachers, by our school systems, by our parents. Western thinking makes two basic mistakes. One, it assumes that reality is what it appears to be through our five physical senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. It only trusts our brains. Second, it assumes that we can understand this material world we we perceive and understand ourselves by studying the components of this material world. For example, in school we study astronomy, geology, meteorology, physics, etc. separately, thinking that's the way to understand the world. In school we also study biology, psychology, medicine, maybe theology and philosophy, all separately, thinking that's the way to understand ourselves. Well, this narrow thinking fails to find the intimate connections between all people and all things, leaving our knowledge and us incomplete. As a result, most of us down deep feel that we're missing something. Many of us feel lost, even betrayed and bitter. Down deep, without really knowing how to put our finger on it, we feel as though we've been lied to. Now, in contrast, multiverse thinking, as we call it, considers the whole of human experience, not just our five senses, and sees a reality that is much bigger than just the physical world. It tries to understand things not by taking them apart, but by putting them together. All aspects of the world and ourselves are viewed as an interactive whole, the big picture, if you will. This is more like Eastern thinking, one which used to be common among the so-called primitive people from the Middle East through Asia, Africa, and South America. Multiverse thinking amplifies this whole idea of oneness by taking into consideration the other, just as real worlds that we live in, parallel worlds where everything that is possible really exists, our big apartment house, as it were. So what's all that got to do with the paranormal? Well, It's through experiences that we Western thinkers call paranormal, which means essentially beyond the normal, uh, experiences of everyday life in the world of our five senses, that we touch the other worlds in the multiverse. This is how we do it, through the paranormal. And these worlds uh, make up what reality really is. We can do this through spirituality as well. It's through the paranormal that we learn how creation really works and what we really are within it. But here's where Western thinking gets in the way again. Those who acknowledge that the paranormal and spirituality are real are still prisoners of their Western education. They don't know how to, quote, think outside the box, as the cliche goes. To them, everything in the paranormal and religion has to be justified in terms of Western science. For example, ghosts must be some kind of spirits. What else could they be? Or UFOs have to be craft from other planets. God has to be proven, quote-unquote, to exist before we believe in he, she, it, or them. My cat died, therefore God must be evil, and so on, and so on, and so on. Western thinking has mercilessly gutted both the paranormal and spirituality. It's turned the life-changing realities of the paranormal into, quote, ghost hunting, and the life-saving realities of spirituality into religion. Surprising numbers of people will tell you that once you grasp multiverse concepts, and Ben and I are two of them, it will dawn on you that this is it. Or so this is what I've been experiencing all along. 
Your life and mind will broaden, expand, and change. You will see and hear farther. You'll feel the connections. You'll realize that you don't need time machines, spaceships, or drugs once you know the real secret to success. It's not about me. It's about all of us. Ben and I go much farther to what we believe is our true task in all this. As with many seekers throughout human history, we believe that this apartment building, as it were, needs a tenants' association. We believe absolutely that all life forms of goodwill who dwell throughout the multiverse, humans and non-humans, are our other selves, the powerful and the weak, angels, super beings, or farmers still plowing their fields in 1735, no matter how alien they might seem to us. All good creatures, known and unknown, everywhere and every when, conceivable or inconceivable, are our brothers and sisters. Furthermore, this brotherhood has common enemies. Ben and I and many others feel uh, in this field know them as the paranormal parasites that we refer to, the ones that mess with us and feed off the suffering of individuals, families, and probably whole tribes, communities, and nations. Folklore calls them demons apparently in many worlds at once. We've seen the power of people standing together against these enemies. Imagine the power of whole worlds standing against them. That's why Ben and I aren't ghost hunters or UFO researchers. We don't chase demons or Bigfoot. After my 40 years work in the paranormal and Ben's five years, we find ourselves nothing less than cosmic sojourners. And we like to think multiversal diplomats in in our small way and bridge builders. Be assured that we have met our number of friends, uh, various species, who are trying to do the same from their own corners of the multiverse. This is amazing stuff, sounds crazy, but boy, this is as real as it gets. There are many worlds yet to visit, many doors yet to open, and many species and races yet to meet. Stay tuned. You haven't heard anything yet. Well, that was a nice story. (laughs) <laughs> okay. It's like you're ending like a story or something. It's like well, it is quite a story, don't you think? You're involved in it. Uh, Float your boat. But it's like I don't know. You're the way it sounded just sounded like like your well radio broadcast. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. It just sounded kind of well. Am I, am, weird. I, am, I, am I underestimating what we're doing? Am I overestimating what we're trying to do? What? No, it just sounded kind of odd. Like it sounds kind of awkward. But whatever floats your boat. Well, how would you put it? I don't know. How would you explain to uh, our friend in Canada what, what the multiverse is about? You I mean, can't. You, it too. you can't explain it. Oh, no. Well, we know it's, well, I suppose it's theologically. We know all these things by analogy. We can't use words and, and, and intellectual concepts to just explain. That's why I said you've got to feel it. Yeah. I don't know. It's really impossible to explain. Uh, well, people know. ask, and we have to try. Yeah. Right, well, do you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I'll move on to the next uh, point of business. All right. Well, this is from Scott Rondo in Ottawa. Uh, the things are hopping in Canada this week. Uh, let's see. Yep. Okay. Okay. So Scott writes to us. I've heard you mention that from time to time you will invoke the name of Jesus or Isis or or any number of other deities or saints uh, deal to deal with entities you encounter in your investigations. Do you think it's possible that those names have power not because they are the names of real gods and such, but instead because they are stable and powerful archetypes? If this were the case, then invoking the name of Elvis should be just as important, just, just as potent 
as invoking the name of Isis. Uh, I was just wondering if it was possible for you to invoke the name of Elvis during one of your investigations just to see what happens as far as archetypes go. Elvis is a very powerful one. If by any chance you happen to give this uh, proposed experiment a try, I'd love to hear the results. I'd try it myself, but I'm not confronted by situations that call for that sort of invocation. Well, that's one of the more interesting <laughs> comments and questions I've heard recently, Scott. I don't know about Elvis, but I think you do have a point when you mention that uh, these names are not entirely all... Po- it's difficult, to, as well as, as, as Ben might have said about the last... It's difficult to put this into words. I don't want to say that, that the name of Jesus or, or Isis or whoever does not have power in itself, because it does. But it has the most power when it is invoked by people who believe. Let me give you an example. In uh, Throughout the Gospels, there are examples of Jesus going to perform miracles in a particular town, especially his hometown of, hometown of Nazareth. And he will say, well, you know, it, it is your faith that has made you well. Uh, people often emphasize the miracles and don't emphasize the faith. And it, it, he essentially says to people, well, well, I didn't do it, you did it. We didn't say I didn't do it, but he said it was your faith that really did it. And when he went to Nazareth, everybody there said, well, what do you think you're doing? Essentially, we we watched you grow up. We know who you are. And uh, literally says he could not do any miracles in Nazareth because people didn't believe in him. So in the same way, when you use a name, it's got to be something that means something to the people. Now, we don't usually go in and invoke names a lot. We, We don't have to. Very often, at least so far, uh, it's it's been a long time since I've had to invoke any name. I, I don't know what it is. It's just th- these things don't like us. As soon as we talk about love and people coming together, which is the first step you take, and and a little bit of faith and humor in a family, that that usually seems to do the trick when it comes to these parasites or these uh, what folklore calls demons, whatever you want to call them. They're just words, names, and uh, for a reality that is pretty formidable. So. On, on, on occasion, when you do have to use a name, I don't know if I'd try Elvis. It, it, it doesn't have that kind of, of connotation of, of cosmic power. At least, maybe it does to some people, but I don't. It doesn't mean anything to me. And I see that I, I have to take it seriously too, as well as the people in the house. So I, I, I don't know if I would use the name Elvis, and I don't think I'd experiment with it. Uh, we've had we, we had uh, Father uh, Father Bob Bailey uh, with us. Uh, some months ago, and he was a Catholic priest who is involved in paranormal research and and in uh, fighting of demonic entities. And they will, of course, naturally use the name of Jesus, which which uh, usually works pretty well. And uh, but I've used the name of ISIS, and I've seen them scatter. You know, and it all depends what the context of the use is. It's got to mean something to the people in the house. That's why we look at their religion. You know, if somebody is a Hindu. You know, you're not going to go in and use the name of, of Isis, let alone, you know, Elvis. So uh, I think you get my point. It's, it's, got, to, it's got to match. It's got to fit. So th- that's, that's how pretty much I, I, would, uh, I would answer that. So I, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to get back to you on any experiments with the name of Elvis. But I think that the faith of the people involved has a lot to do with what, uh, what the result, uh, result is. Uh, here's one from uh, Brian Halgus in Belvern in Pennsylvania. All right, so he writes... I'm sorry, Ben, did you have anything to say about that last 
That's right. No, you you got to every base before I did. Yeah, I didn't over I didn't uh, over um, overstate the thing. All right. Okay, well, don't worry about it. Uh, I have just started to listen to your show and find it most instructive. Okay. Um, I have a question about the case of the college student haunting a house in Maine and stopping at the house and meeting the couple she was quote unquote haunting. I am reminded of an episode of the TV series The Sixth Sense entitled The House That Cried Murder, which aired, um, to, so that's February 5th, 1972. I do believe this show is, the show had a storyline somewhat similar to the case Paul investigated. Could the story presented on TV have created a, a reality of its own, or could the parties involved in the main haunting have been influenced by the TV series if they have, in fact, watched it? By the way, I have memories of The Sixth Sense, but I remember the show as a, I remember the show as I remember dreams, and not as I remember other TV shows. Uh, something mad, uh, something made this series very strange indeed. Thanks, and I look forward to your upcoming programs. Okay, well, uh, you know, thank you very much, Brian. But, uh, as I say time and again on the air, I don't really watch television very much, uh, especially not shows like this. People very often say, well, that theory here sounds like it came out of this issue of this episode of Star Trek. Well, I, I never saw that. I don't know, and I'm not the only one who thinks of these things. And especially back in 1972, when I was in the middle of uh, you know, my seminary career, I certainly didn't have a lot of time to watch any TV. And I never heard of this series. I never heard of this House That Cried Murder episode, certainly. Uh, the case that, that uh, Brian is referring to was in 1979. And I was um, just out of graduate school and uh, was, was, uh, had nothing and was, was in a, living in a little cottage by a lake in Connecticut. And this call came in from a young girl who had been very frightened by an experience the previous weekend in which she had been up in Maine with her sister, had gone by a house. The sister had said, that's my house, which it wasn't. And then she ran out of the car and met the people in the house who were terrified of her because they said she was the ghost haunting the house. So essentially what you had was a student at the University of Connecticut who at the same time was apparently a ghost haunting a house 120 miles away in York, Maine. So I said, well, what have we here? And it became one of the most uh, significant mind changers, I guess, of of my career in this and uh, made me wonder, gee, are we really dealing with spirits of the dead? Are we dealing with something far deeper and far more interesting? And I came to the latter conclusion. So that's what this case was about. And I I must uh, emphasize, I I did not see anything I did not experience these things. All I did was talk to the people. The people in the house were seeing this girl in various places at various times as a transparent figure. She, at the same time, was uh, had had dreams the, the previous evening, in the case of each instance, as far as I could trace it, of doing the very same things that the people in the house saw her doing. They, of course, not knowing anything about the multiverse at the time, thought, that she was a ghost, and she, of course, was... Of course, what we had here, in my opinion, today is two people sharing the same parallel realities, all right? And interestingly, as soon as they met, all these phenomena ceased. That, that did not uh, help the people in the house who were left at complete nervous wrecks and had to sell the place, and the girl herself, who never got quite the explanation that she thought uh, was, was happening here. So uh, maybe they saw that show, Brian, I don't know. Uh, they never mentioned it. And, of course, that, that was, of course, uh, seven years before 
this incident occurred. Uh, it's much like the people in the Bridgeport. I was reading something online today that I've never seen a blog uh, commemorating the, I guess, the 35th anniversary or something of the um, Bridgeport poltergeist outbreak of 1974, with which I was involved. And they were suggesting, well, maybe, of course, people were saying that the, the, the film The Exorcist influenced everybody. That had come out the, the previous December. Uh, yeah, people exp- in the crowd said they expected the, the priest or me to come flying out the window like the priest did at the end of the movie and all silly stuff like this. And it was a real case. I was injured during it by flying furniture, and, and it was no joke. But, again, seeing a movie does not create phenomena, as far as I can see. It might encourage belief by some people, but very often the people who are experiencing these things are skeptics, have never had anything like this happen before, are utterly terrified, and have no desire to go through what they're going through. So, I don't know. I, certainly, I, I don't think that there was any direct cause by any television show or movie uh, in, in either this case or the Poltergeist case. So anyway, we're going to pause for a commercial break here on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, onworldwide.com. Stay with us. This is Romeo Berthiam inviting you to join me every Saturday morning from 6 to 9 for the Saturday Show. This all-request program includes music, news, sports, weather, and all sorts of community announcements. And what a great way to start your weekend. Join me this Saturday morning. Hi, this is Russ Gorman. If you're wondering what the stars have in store for you, be sure to join me for Russ Gorman on Astrology right here on ON 1240, Monday through Thursday mornings at 1030 on ON 1240. Local radio at its best. Hi, I'm Russ Gorman. 2010 is a year that will affect everyone's destiny. Influences are coming up that most of us have never experienced in our lifetime. The planet Jupiter will occupy three different signs during the coming months, which is most unusual. Uranus is moving into a new position it will occupy for the next seven years, and that signifies major changes for every sign in the zodiac. How will these changes affect you? Get a chart done to discover how best to profit and succeed and to learn the lessons Saturn is trying to teach you. The chart or horoscope covers every aspect of your life. Money, relationship, job, windfalls, and health. Only your personalized astrological chart will guide you through the rapid and often surprising changes coming up. It's your life. Stay in control by making the right moves and decisions at the right times. Call me at 333 to order your personalized astrological chart or to order a gift chart for someone who is important to you. 333-4048. I'll be waiting to hear from you. You can depend on us for public service. Owen Radio. Welcome back to the 200th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And Ben and I tonight are answering our, trying to get through some piles of emails here that have been uh, piling up. And we have one here now from Cindy in Nashua, New Hampshire. And if you would do the honors, please. Okay. um, 
Hi, since they started clear, clearing the land and ripping the trees from the ground, I have begun to experience paranormal activity. There was a loud, inhuman sound slash growl that came from the woods. First, then these large-looking shadow people appeared that night. They look in the front bay window. They don't show up until it starts to get dark. Up in my grandkids' room, there was a young girl in a white nightgown leaning against the bureau. She has black eyes and grayish-blue skin. She is very mad-looking. She has a horrible scowl on her face. My three grandkids will no longer play in their room. One says there's a, a monster in my... There. Says there's a monster in my room, and it scares me. The oldest doesn't like the closet. She blocks the door with the toy box, and table, and uh, chair set. The youngest will no longer go upstairs at all. They had no problem play playing there before. Uh, could you tell me what these things want and how to get rid of them? We had no problems before the land clearing began. Uh, thank you for your help. This is, sounds very interesting. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to be in touch personally here, uh, uh, Cindy. But uh, just a, a few comments. This reminds me of, of a couple of other cases. One occurred in England, and uh, there was someone I know who was uh, a neighbor of this site, and, and things like this started to happen. And what, what occurred was a little more positive than what you're describing, uh, positive depending on how you look at it. The... The construction foreman, they were trying to clear some land to put up a parking lot or something. And the construction foreman declared that he would get there in the morning and none of the equipment would work. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with it mechanically, but the, the bulldozers and the grader and, and uh, backhoe, whatever, uh, just didn't wouldn't start. And uh, everything seemed okay. Eventually they would, but then they, they something would happen. They would stop as soon as they started to work. So eventually this this got so serious that they just gave up on the project. Yeah, they couldn't afford to just keep going on, and, and they, they uh, sold the land to, I guess, the uh, National Trust or somebody uh, who was preserving the land. And it turned out that the backstory to this was that a bunch of college students had prayed to Pan, the Roman god Pan, who was the god of the forests and fields and nice places like that, and to protect this land. And somehow, well, none of these machines would start, and the construction foreman would complain of, quote, those darn college kids, a little more colorful than that, in the woods, and, and playing flutes. And Pan, of course, is known for his pan pipes, and the little flutey sounds that sometimes will come out of them. So I thought that was just terrific. Now, not, not, not that I'm against any kind of growth here, but I mean, it's, uh, I thought it was, was precious. So that, that gave up on the whole project. Uh, that, but, of course, people uh, did not report negative things such as this happening. We do find that when things are disturbed, whether at times in a home during renovations or on, on, on uh, open land, when there is uh, something there that really shouldn't be disturbed, uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way, it sounds too spooky, uh, energies can be, become disheveled. And what I'm talking about is, is we often find uh, our good friend Joe Frizzello, the, the uh, soil engineer, at times will find that uh, a site that is troubled, uh, where there's a lot of activity going on, will have a high water table. He's a soil engineer, as I say. Uh, we'll have clay soil or sandy soil, which uh, in combination, uh, or if it's near water, in combination can 
contribute to the conductivity of electromagnetic fields, electrical currents, that can wreak havoc at times with space-time. They can, as it were, draw, we were talking about the multiverse before, that they can draw worlds to kind of intersect and join, and it sounds like that's what you have going on here uh, in New Hampshire, Cindy, and that's, you're reporting humanoid creatures, right? Uh, not your standard quote-unquote ghost. Uh, the girl with, with the bluish uh, skin, uh, these non-human figures looking through the windows, these are all symptoms of uh, multiverse dishevelment in the sense that worlds are intersecting. Uh, the world where this little girl lives is intersecting with yours and intersecting with, with the ones uh, where these, these humanoids live. Now, we find this frequently in major cases that we work on, we're working one, uh, the one we talk about in Connecticut, this is exactly what's happening. And it's embracing a very large area, not just your house. I would say, first of all, step one, uh, do what we always suggest. Come together with your family, uh, talk about this, uh, don't try, I would not suggest withholding this information from the children, uh, I wouldn't try and put it in a scary manner, but I, I would get together on this with the rest of the family. Draw together in more ways than just talking. Uh, try and reinforce the good feeling. Especially now, it's, it's Christmas time. Uh, the good humor, uh, all the love that you have, bring it together and bring it to bear. This will protect you from negative things. Now, on the other hand, there are things that are just... These, these multiversal intersections are kind of neutral, generally. And if you have any parasites involved, uh, they will be, this will help protect you from them. But it, will, it won't do much to keep the, the intersections from occurring. Uh, I'm going to be in touch with you personally on this and uh, try and give you a hand personally because this might be something Ben and I might want to look into uh, more fully. But I think that's essentially what you've got. You've got whatever's, whoever's messing with the land there is... Fooling is, is creating a problem with, with, with space-time, probably because of the geology of the site, the uh, hydrology of the site, this kind of thing. And as strange as it sounds, that, that these things are relevant. I'll, and I'll go you one better. I'll suggest that some of your neighbors, if you have any neighbors, are having similar or the same problems as you are. I would ask uh, that you, if you can, and if you can, can bring it up in any kind of discreet manner, they don't think you're crazy, if you know them well enough, to ask about what's happening in your neighbor's house and say, gee, you know, since they started working on the land, uh, hearing a lot of strange things, I don't know what they're doing over there, and see if you can get the conversation going. But we will be in touch personally and see if we can't give you a hand with this. That sounds like something uh, that you might need a little, little bit of... Um, um, personal advice about okay and again uh, try to reassure the children that as long as you stick together nothing is going to to hurt them okay all right now moving on this is one from molly in spokane washington and molly says all right molly says where i grew up a not so old house outside seattle we had a ghost who used to sit on beds Brush, uh, brush against us on the stairs, and sometimes move things around. It never seemed too spiritual to me. I never understood why until I read Footsteps in the Attic. That was a real first person. Uh, that was a real person sharing our space, rather than some dead guy who makes a lot of noise, or uh, rather, some dead guy makes a lot more sense to me. My question is: Could we have closed the doors? That is, can shut off the connection between our worlds, or their world and ours, or, as you and Ben might say, detach the membranes? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's well put. 
uh, Molly. I, I would say that what you could have done, uh, not everybody can do. Right, let, me put, let me rephrase that. We, we recently were working on a case where we literally tried to move the portals, or as you, if you, as you might say, the intersection of the membranes, out of the house into the yard of these people, just so they could sort of have their house back. The house has a very, very long history of paranormal activity. All sorts of people are coming and going. All sorts of non-people are coming and going all the time. There are even UFOs involved. So what we tried to do was to... Uh, actually, we, we teamed up with one of the humanoids there, and uh, we moved... It usually takes three people in a sort of triangle uh, to move the, the portals out of the house. And so far, so good. We've had a lot of good reports from there. Interesting things are still happening in the area because it involves an entire area, as most of these things do. But it was uh, uh, successful so far. So I would say you could have done that, but you probably would have needed someone with shamanic abilities. Uh, shamans are very good at, uh, they know exactly what we're talking about here. And matter of fact, I, I got mo a lot of my early ideas on this from a shaman uh, of the uh, Australian Aboriginal people. And I was in Australia in the line of duty, and this particular fellow explained everything that I was wondering uh, in my early career as a paranormal uh, investigator. And it, a, a shamanic person uh, would be someone that would really be able to help close these doors. Uh, however, it's a matter of just like looking for anyone uh, to investigate a case or to, if you're looking for a psychic or something, it's very tricky trying to find someone who really is legitimate and is, is, is you know, good at it or uh, is not going to be... Um, make more problems than he or she solves. So, yes, you could have done this, but you would have needed the right person or combination of people to do it. So that's how I sort of answer that. If this is still going on, uh, of course, you don't, no, you don't live in the place anymore. I guess, I guess you're okay. So, yeah, you could have detached the membrane. Okay, this is um, from Jeff, and Jeff does, he did not use our form, so I have no idea where he's from. It, it doesn't really no, matter. No, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Okay, Paul, I've enjoyed your 2009 Coast to Coast AM interview with George Nury a number of times. You're on the right track, I suspect. Too, too many people don't notice links between different paranormal phenomena because they specialize. I'm primarily attracted to UFO cases, but looking at this holistically, there's a, a multi-phenomenon. One very striking note which caught me off guard, and I can't remember which book gave me this, was mention of alien greys seen during near-death experiences. Some, uh, some meetings with aliens seem very out-of-body, quote-unquote. I've seen... I've, uh, I've even looked into Dr. Michael Persinger's experimentation with stimulating the human brain to induce alien uh, presences. I also think that Graham Hancock was onto something with this his book spiritual uh, with his book Supernatural. Another kudo goes to you for reading the Bible in the original Hebrew. I'm a scholarly Jew who uh, who says keep point keeps pointing out uh, that the King James translation, I don't even want to call it a version, is the worst. There's so much depth that people are ignorant about in the original text. Jeff. Okay, well, thank you, Jeff. Very, very uh, incisive points here. Uh, you mentioned this, two of our former 
guess, uh, Dr. Michael Persinger, uh, who invented uh, what uh, he amusingly calls the God Helmet, and uh, you can st- use this to stimulate the near-death experience or spiritual experiences or, as, as you point out, UFO alien experiences in the minds of certain people simply by st- electrically stimulating the uh, various areas of the brain. Now, we, we had a very enjoyable show uh, with Dr. Persinger last year, and we were prepared to blow him out of the water, frankly. But he, he, he did explain himself very well, and he, he did uh, uh, sort of... Well, agree with us that this does not mean that these experiences are not real, just because they can be stimulated. Uh, Because the question uh, on all these experiences is, are you artificially experiencing these things through chemical imbalances or through electrical stimulation, or uh, is this stimulation opening doors to actual worlds that are really there, and you're experiencing that? I tend to to believe the latter explanation. So in any case, uh, I think that uh, Graham Hancock also, of course, uh, makes a point. Uh, He has been... Uh, with us on the show several times. Um, so uh, I guess pretty much you're just making observations here, and I certainly agree with you, and I, I uh, thank you for noticing the things that we're trying to get across on the show here. Uh, the alien gray issue seen during near-death experiences. When I was working in psychiatric hospitals as a grad student and as a seminary student, I experienced several people having near-death experiences. Many of the patients at the time were bedridden, and there were far more inpatients then than now. And I don't, I must say, I do not remember anyone in my experience saying that they had, or giving any indication that they were experiencing alien grays. But of course, remember, these terms are slippery. What people see in that situation or in any situation, very often depends on their own experience and their own understanding. If they see a near, near a narrow humanoid figure, there's aha, an alien, a space alien. But as we've said several times tonight, uh, that's not necessarily what they are. They could be just neighbors from a neighboring apartment, as we were saying earlier in the show. So these things are kind of slippery, and whether actual gray aliens are involved in any way, I, I seriously kind of doubt it. Do you remember, Ben, in 03, when we were at the Paranormal Conference in West Virginia, there was a speaker who actually had an illustration of a report that he had heard of UFOs hovering over a graveyard or over a cemetery. And I don't know if you, you were you were really young at the time, but he was saying, gee, I wonder if aliens don't have any, something to do with our trip to the afterlife or something like well, that. Wasn't that what the Heaven's Gate people thought? Yeah, pretty much, I guess, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, the, the, the Heaven's uh, gay people were the ones in, in San Diego who unfortunately committed suicide. They were a cult, and they believed that the, the comet that was coming, his name escapes me, Kohotek, was it, whatever, mm. at the time, yeah. uh, was about ten years ago, was uh, going to carry them to uh, somewhere, but I, I don't know. These things can get out of hand. You have to be very careful to keep your feet on the ground. Anyway, uh, but I, however, I have heard of people reporting uh, before they have died, seeing uh, alien greys. I don't know how warm and fuzzy that is, but they apparently uh, uh, had experienced that. But I myself have not had personal experience with people who have personally experienced uh, alien greys in the context of a near-death experience. It's something we can ask our guest in two weeks, uh, uh, who will, is an expert on, on that subject, and we'll see what he might have to say on that. Uh, Mr. Bullman, William, William Bullman, who will be... Uh, with us in two weeks on our next live show. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, this is a question from Sean. 
also in Ontario, boy, uh, on orbs or UFOs, and Sean writes. Okay, um, I don't know if you know about the objects which look like a powder blue colored orb which fly around at night. I live in Hamilton, Ontario, and I can say that any one at any one given time, these thing these things fly high above my head, making rapid turns and in seconds disappear over the horizon. Some of these orbs, and he has a question mark, at times just float overhead or just stop. They seem to be coming from the west with intelligence when flying. Every night I see them and. I have flashed a one million candle power flashlight at them, and these orbs now slow down and drift over my head in a circular fashion. I spot these things by uh, the distortion around the orbs. Generally, I count about 20 orbs a night, and I have approximately 10 witnesses to this report. Uh, And then he just goes on to give contact information. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a very interesting question, Sean. Uh, a question of what orbs are is very pertinent to modern paranormal research. A lot of people assume they are, that, well, they even call them spirit orbs. Right? You know, you get these, uh, these sort of blood, they almost look like cells, you know, biologically speaking, in photographs. And many times they appear as thick as snowflakes. Sometimes they are snowflakes. Uh, sometimes they're bugs. Especially if you're using a, a flash photo, a flash camera outside at night, uh, you can pick up the bugs in the summer, and they look like orbs, uh, even moving, and this sort of thing. So, I mean, what they are is is really an open question. However, there are some that do not fit natural explanations. I've seen them with the naked eye. I don't think I don't know if Ben has. Yeah, you, you've seen them out of the corner. Yeah, what? Oh yeah, I'm just thinking of that house in yeah, yeah, Massachusetts. Um, and so they, they do seem to exist independently. My theory is, personally, that, that they are plasma-based life forms, something that has been speculated by astrophysicists right down to, astrobiologists, I should say, right down to Carl Sagan, uh, the great Carl Sagan, uh, who popularized many areas of science. I thought there were plasma-based life forms in the universe uh, somewhere or somewhen, and I think these might be them or at least some of them, they seem to be present, and I think they're feeding around the boundaries of these worlds that we're always talking about, around the uh, places where membranes intersect, because that's where they seem to turn up. Uh, or they seem to turn up just, just around. I've had them follow me, as it were, uh, and they behave in an intelligent manner. Uh, so, of course, does ball lightning. So, again, it's an open question. There's certainly a certain amount of electricity involved, and plasma is just that. It really, it's electrified air molecules, essentially. So, as uh, far as what they are, uh, it, it goes a little, a little farther recently, though, because we had Ted Phillips on the show uh, recent, on a recent uh, broadcast, and he is probably the greatest uh, uh, gatherer of information, uh, physical evidence of UFO landings. And he made the point that up until about five years ago, most of these UFOs were seen as almost like mechanical objects. They could be interpreted as mechanical objects. You know, they landed, maybe they were on legs, uh, they seemed metallic. But now, a lot of UFO reports are coming in of smaller objects, very much like uh, what Sean is describing here, these these floating orbs or or, uh, ovals. 
uh, he describes them as uh, very small, usually at times, uh, very much like the the orbs that uh, we're receiving all kinds of reports about that are supposed to be ghosts or, or related to that area of the paranormal. So whether so, my answer essentially, Sean, is that I just don't uh, don't know what's happening here. Since they're reacting to this light you're mentioning, uh, that may be might be significant. They do react. Uh, to me, when I'm, if I, if for example, there was one in, in New Hampshire. I was in uh, a cemetery there, and I don't hang around cemeteries like some of the other people do. But this is before Ben got involved, and there were you, you could very clearly see these orbs. They would change color, and they would follow. I would turn around and approach one. It would back off. Uh, of course, as I say, ball lightning does similar things. Uh, I would turn around and keep walking, and it would follow me again. Sometimes it would change color. You know, mood orbs. I don't know. So, in in the case of uh, UFO interaction. Uh, your your note brings to mind the things that sometimes occurred during the Mothman events of the 1960s in the Ohio Valley. There was uh, not just the, the the Mothman appearances of this the Mothman crew that the press called Mothman. There were also all sorts of paranormal phenomena going on in conjunction with this. A pair, uh, poltergeist activity. People were seeing ghosts, and people were also also seeing lots of these orbs. And they were seeing larger craft that would land sometimes uh, on hilltops or would just fly over the area. People would gather on certain roads to see them go by. And people would try large lights, uh, flashing lights at them. Sometimes they would get a reaction from these crafts, sometimes not. So people even put lights up, up on a, uh, a hill to simulate a landed UFO in hopes that they would lure in uh, craft that were flying by, and of course this didn't really work. Uh, Stan Friedman has, has laughed at that on this show, and I don't blame him. So uh, we really don't don't really know. Uh, I would say continue to gather information, get some photographs if you can, uh, share them with us. We'd be happy to take a look at them, and uh, continue to notice the behavior of these things and uh, what they, uh, how they seem to react to your presence as well. Uh, we are still looking at what these are, and maybe you can help resolve the question. So orbs. Who knows? All right. Uh, we how much time do we have there, Gary? We have about five minutes. Okay. All right. Well, let's. Uh, what, what is your reaction to that, Ben? Uh, Which from one? your experience with orbs, I mean, uh, I have little. I, mean? I have little to none. Little to no experience with orbs. You have more experience than I do. Yeah, well, it's still, the more you experience them, the less you know what they are. It's just like, but they do, the ones that are not, again, and I do emphasize that just because you, these appear on photographs does not mean that it's anything paranormal. Uh, as, as we often point out on the show, digital cameras particularly will interpret lights and objects in a certain way, and sometimes they can come out looking like orbs. Uh, there's a picture on the New England Ghosts website of, of uh, Ben when he was about, good heavens, you were wrapped up in a blanket and you were on a sled. Mom was pulling you and Jonathan, and you were probably six months old. But the thing is full of orbs. But what they really were were snowflakes, because I took the picture and it was snowing, so that was what your orbs were. Dust sometimes, but again, don't don't jump to conclusions. But again, there do seem to be orbs that just don't seem to have any explanation of that kind. All right, trying to find a brief one here. Might be able to finish up with. Well, all right, let's. Uh, maybe we can start this one. This is from Tracy in Tualatin, Oregon. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, why don't we just read the first part of the sentence? Uh, Okay, the first part of the sentence. All right. I have had problems with aliens since I was in the crib, but in 1999, I 
made an alien mad that looks and that looks like us and hangs out in robes and he sent in the parasites after me and it's been schizo world ever since all right well let's stop there right all right we'll, we'll finish this on another show but i just wanted to just kind of get started with that one you know when i was a journalist i was in newspaper business for 30 years you kind of you get into the habit of, of not being too sure what not to believe, and especially in the realm of the paranormal. I mean, people write, they sound like complete lunatics, but boy, sometimes when you stand in their shoes uh, and you know you look at, at even their medical history, there's really nothing wrong with these people, and they're having these ultra-weird experiences. Look at some of the stuff we talk about. Yeah. You know, they're going to lock us up 20 years ago. I mean, today people are a little more open-minded, but things that have happened to us, I wouldn't have believed it if they hadn't happened to us. So there's uh, problems with aliens since he was in the crib. Well, the whole abduction phenomenon very often begins, uh, if you believe in it, and and many, many very, very people who have more degrees after their name than I have do believe in it, they start in the crib. And uh, people wondering if if these uh, aliens or whatever they are 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 doing genetic experiments, trying to lead up to some sort of hybridization. Who knows? Look look at the political situation today. You believe anything when it comes to that. Well, you can add this to it. Uh, so, any aliens in the crib? And of course, uh, I don't know how she made an alien mad. I think we can get into that in another show. Uh, but it looks um, looks like us and hangs out in robes. Now, what does that remind you of? Um, Almost the, the the clerics, as we call them. But no, no, no. Well, they're, well, they they're not negative in any way. Oh, um, makes me think of a um, uh, stupid movie. No, um, another movie. I don't know. I can't remember it. All right. Well, I think we're not going to have time to pursue that. But I think uh, let's let's start with that email with the understanding that we're going to be have an open mind uh, with what uh, Tracy has to say. So anyway, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap ourselves up here. Uh, so many thanks to our producer Gary Garcia. Ben and I will be taking a little time off. Something I'm not sure I remember how to do. So next week's show will be a rebroadcast on Monday, the 27th of December, here on ON 12:40 a.m. ONWorldwide.com. Uh, but we'll see you live again on January 3rd when we'll welcome William Bullman. We said an expert in near-death experiences. Okay. Likewise, on our CBS Sunday Radio edition of Behind the Paranormal in Boston. Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, and online at www.newskyradio.com and at www.parax.com. There will be rebroadcasts for the next two weeks, but we'll see you back live on January 9th with Maverick archaeologist Michael Cremo, and we'll be talking about the things that mainstream archaeologists don't want you to know about. Okay, and again, check our show website anytime, BehindTheParanormal.com, for guests, uh, past, future, and uh, for all kinds of podcasts of our shows, uh, well over 200 now. And tonight we'll leave you with a turn-of-the-season winter thought from the great German playwright Goethe. Quote, Sometimes our fate resembles a fruit tree in winter. Who would think that those branches would turn green again and blossom? But we hope it, and we know it. Thank you for staying with us on our great cosmic journey. See See you next next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben.